Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all your smiling faces. Um, and those of you who are joining us by home, can't see you, but we love you nonetheless. Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's our passage this morning. As you're turning there, let's pray. Father, thank you for your promised Holy Spirit, your Spirit that leads us into truth. We ask now that during this time as we gather at the feet of the Lord and hear from his word, that you would confirm and strengthen us in all goodness and that you would convict any sin or any failure to trust in your goodness that we might repent and return quickly to the Lord. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It struck me over the last several weeks that as we read these Pauline epistles, to read a New Testament epistle is something like overhearing one side of a telephone conversation, right? You hear one side of the dialogue, and then from that, you are able to piece together and surmise what was happening on both sides, what was really going on, what was really at issue. And here's what was at issue in Corinth. This is a, 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 a dominant macro theme that we've seen emerge over these weeks as we've been reading through it, and that is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is the central theme for entire book of 2 Corinthians. And then, of course, the implications that spill out from that. If Jesus is Lord, and we proclaim him as Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, then he has the right to tell us what to do, what to love, what to hate, how to spend our time and money, what to do with our bodies. He is Lord. That's the first and macro theme of the entire letter. But the second thing that we've seen recur throughout this letter is that Paul must readily give a defense for questions and challenges to his apostolic authority. So Paul has planted this church in Corinth. He's, been, he's left. He's been in regular correspondence with them, writing and receiving letters and updates. And what's happened is that there have been super apostles, guys who claim to be all that in a bag of chips, right? And they show up in Corinth and they start undermining the ministry that Paul had done, uh, questioning his apostolic pedigree, and leading the church astray. Well, for 21st century Christians in Burlington, maybe that seems like a foreign or strange idea that Paul would defend his apostolic ministry. Maybe it even seems arrogant or prideful, right? Like, who is he to say that he has an exclusive claim on truth? Why didn't Paul just allow all worldviews to be presented within this church in Corinth? Right? Because all worldviews are equal. You have your truth, you, I have mine. That sort of narrative. Why did Paul defend his apostolic ministry in these letters in Corinth? Well, it's because the church is defined by the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. Okay. Jesus is Lord. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? 
We know that Jesus is Lord because the apostolic witness to the risen Christ is captured in our New Testament. And the church is only the church insofar as it follows apostolic teaching, i.e. the word of God. Are you with me so far? And so it becomes incredibly important when Paul builds a defense for his apostolic ministry. The presenting issue in this chapter is Paul's authority and legitimacy in the face of these super apostles. The deeper issue, the thing that's at stake, will this fledgling church in Corinth remain faithful to his apostolic ministry and endure? Or will they depart from apostolic witness and go belly up within a generation. That's what's at issue. Now, it's, it's worth us backing away from this for a moment as we begin to get into this text. You know, it is a biblical truth that the church universal of Jesus Christ will endure until he returns to receive it as his bride. That's not up for grabs. But each local congregation is only ever one generation, one heresy, away from demise and destruction. That's why it matters. So what are the factors that lead to the demise of a local church? Well, we're going to see those here in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. And friends, they apply not only to that Corinthian church, but they apply to us today at St. George's in Burlington. All right. Apostolic authority, lordship of Jesus, playing for all the marbles, right? What are the things that lead to the demise of a church? Well, the first one we see in verses 1 to 7, worldliness. You know, there are few things that will rot a church so insidiously and pervasively as worldliness. In verse 2, Paul refers to worldliness as walking according to the flesh. Do you see that? In verses 1 to 2, Paul warns them that he may be away right now, but he is going to come back and see them. And he says, when I come back to see you, there's a special warning for those who've been talking smack behind my back. That's what he's saying. See, Paul has caught wind that there are these new guys in Corinth that are trying to lead the church astray, and they're saying things like, oh, that Paul. He's a lion when he's away from us writing letters, but he's just a little pussycat when he's face to face. They accuse him of what we would call in today's parlance of being a social media keyboard warrior. Being Twitter brave. That's what they're accusing him of. Well, the first thing Paul cautions them and says, you don't know me. He says, it's not true. Paul is warning the Corinthians and saying, don't make the mistake 
of taking my kindness for weakness. That's what he's saying. You don't know me. And the second thing is, those who accuse Paul of this not only do not know Paul, but they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He, who was tender, meek, and lowly, with anyone who is heavy laden with sin, and yet fierce, cutting, and damning to anyone who is self-righteous. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And so this accusation that they bring against Paul that he's addressing in the beginning of chapter 10, they may be trying to dismiss him with this accusation, but they are actually backhandedly saying, Paul, you're exactly like Jesus. Tender, meek, and lowly when appropriate, and fierce and full of fire when it's called for. Paul's timid demeanor, he says, is a matter of deliberate choice. It's a work of the Spirit. Look at verses 3 to 6. Paul's cautioning them that when he returns, they had better have their worldliness in check. They'd better get this walking according to the flesh issue sorted. You know, friends, this is a, a cautionary word for us today as it was in Corinth. There's no room for worldliness in the church. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be noticeably different from the world around us, holy, set apart, consecrated, born again, saved, being sanctified, Hating sin, the sin that we see in our own lives especially, despising it and, and turning away from it, and when we fall into it, repenting and returning to the Lord for grace, mortifying it and putting it to death. Loving and pursuing godliness. The church ought to be different than the world. Well, this caution that Paul brings addresses a specific type of worldliness that's creeping in in Corinth, but you know, I think it applies in the general case to any worldliness that ever creeps into the church. It's an interesting thing. When you look out over the world today, you'll notice very quickly that so much secularism, so much worldliness, has taken on religious fervor. So much of the secular narrative right now is built on premises that would actually be identifiable as religious tenets and commitments in any context. How did that happen? Well, I think part of it is, ever since the West has tried to depart from 
historic Christian faith and its ethics and its values, it's left a void and vacuum in the hearts of people who are actually seeking for some kind of virtue, ethic, and moral. And so they take the issue of the day, the issue du jour, and they load it with religious fervor. And so anti-racism takes on a religious fervor. Climate change takes on a religious fervor. Human sexuality, religious fervor. And friends, each of those is just a matter of worldliness. Look, the fact of the matter is Christians know that we reject the worldly framework of each of those issues and more because the gospel speaks to them in a better way. Racism is repugnant to God. But critical theory is not the way to address it. That's worldliness. Ever since the Garden of Eden, human beings have been charged with the task of tending to and caring for and having dominion over God's creation. But the current narrative of climate change is secular humanism, and it's a disaster. It's worldliness. It's taken on a religious fervor. We have something better. If you don't think that these woke issues have taken on a religious fervor, just try asking a critical question about one of them. And you'll be dismissed, denigrated, canceled. You will be told of the settled science, which is a non sequitur to begin with, right? Science, by definition, is never settled. It's always the process of questioning. So when you're told, shut up, that science is settled, Actually, what you're being told is this is a religious commitment and conviction. It's a worldly, secular religion. Don't poke the idolatry. That's what you're being told. Well, that's worldliness. And it's one thing for worldliness to be out in the world. The problem is when worldliness creeps into the church. When the church allows the secular narrative to set the agenda for the church, that's a big problem, and that's what Paul's warning against. Worldliness in the church leads to its demise. So if you see a church that's walking according to the flesh, if you see a church that's preaching a secular gospel that is no gospel at all, run. If you've noticed that secularism has become the lens through which you see the world and its issues and its plight, repent. It's worldliness. You take another approach to the same issue of worldliness creeping into the Christian and into the church and say, well, what are the weapons that you employ? Right? Did you hear that language in verses 3 to 6? Paul's addressing this issue of worldliness creeping into the church, and he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What weapons do you employ? You will see if you are allowing worldliness to creep into your life and into the church if you look at the weapons you use to address the issues that confront you. So whenever you see conflict or polarization in the world, whenever you see it in your family or in your marriage or in your workplace, what are the weapons that you turn to? What are the tools that you use? Is prayer a first weapon? Or complaining and gossip? Are the weapons of your warfare of the flesh? Or another way that the weapons of your warfare might be of the flesh is if you turn quickly to clinging to power and bravado in the face of conflict and hardship. That's worldliness. And it's not like Jesus and it's not like Paul. And so, friends, there you have it. Right? This is what brings these verses together. Paul's timidity is not weakness, but it's a demonstration of the fact that he has taken every thought captive to Jesus Christ. He's meek because he's living in obedience to Christ. That's what it is. And those are weapons that are not of the flesh. It's a rejection of worldliness. You know, I've experienced this in my own life. I think I've told you the story of how I noticed that I was becoming very angry. This was probably, you know, seven or eight years ago. If we were going somewhere and I had to load the car with, you know, bags, by the time I'd get the bags in the car, I'd be ready to throw stuff. It's like silly, right? Why are you angry all the time, man? And Matt actually pointed that out to me. He was just a little kid at the time. He's like, bro, why are you so angry? I'm like, I don't know. And so I took it to the Lord in prayer. I said, God, take away this anger. And you know that it was a progressive thing. But some seven, eight, ten years later, I'm not an inherently angry person anymore. The weapons that I use now are not so fleshly and worldly. I think that's what Paul's saying. Paul is exposing the worldliness within the Corinthian church by contrast. He's saying, I'm not timid. I am captively obedient to Christ. I am employing weapons that are not of the flesh. These new guys who've come on the scene, they're not actually strong. They're just blowhards. They're worldly. They have lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. They're worldly. Okay, let's bring this back to application. Any church that co-ops worldliness, worldly approaches to define or address problems will not endure. 
And at the same time, any church that is captively obedient to Christ and that uses weapons that are not of the flesh will be maligned and accused of timidity, like Paul was, or irrelevance, or worse. Far too many churches in our day have lost their way. They cling to secular gospels that are not gospels at all. They're walking according to the flesh. They no longer preach the gospel of Jesus. They preach the secular gospel of whatever current woke issue is the biggest one of the day. Worldliness. But friends, we at St. George's need to daily recommit ourselves to being about the business of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seeing souls saved for eternity. This may seem like weakness or foolishness to the world, but that's only because they're perishing, Scripture says. The gospel is the power of God on the salvation. Our first point is that few things will lead to the demise of the church or the Christian more readily than worldliness because that's not the gospel and only the gospel can save. Look at verses 7 to 11. We see the second thing that can lead to the demise of a church and that is a lack of apostolic authority or turning away from the word of God. In verses 7 to 11, we see that there is clearly at least one guy in Corinth who's undermining Paul in his absence. This unnamed rival is leveling powerful criticisms against Paul. And so Paul uses this guy's own words and quotes them back to him in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Our English translation says, for they say, but actually the Greek can also be translated literally, for he says. It's quite likely that Paul's referring to things that this guy who's still in Corinth is saying about him. For they say, for he says, his, Paul's, letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Is this fascinating second century document that's extant, it still exists, that in great detail describes what the Apostle Paul probably looked like physically. Was it accurate? Who knows, but it seems to fit with other things we have. And it describes Paul in this way. It says, Paul was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. <laughs> Not on the cover of GQ, this guy. Right? Now, the bald head is beautiful, but that's a point for another day. The chicken legs, now that's a problem. And so that's what they're using to try to dismiss Paul and his apostolic authority. If you, if you read on in 2 Corinthians, we're going to get to chapter 12, verses 7 to 8 in a couple of weeks, it's quite possible that Paul also had a physical disability. That's one of the possibilities for this thorn in the flesh. And what's happening in Corinth is something that still happens in churches today. 
apostolic authority is challenged and undermined. They did it back then by trying to undermine Paul himself, and it happens today with efforts to undermine Paul's letters. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is inherently an effort to try to undermine apostolic authority. Same thing that happened back then, that same thing that happens today. How does this happen in the present day? Well, you've heard them all. There are accusations that are leveled against the word of God. People say things like, it is irrelevant. It's outdated. What an arrogant position, eh? People just dismiss it like it's outdated. Like this myth of progress, like we finally are so smart. Or they dismiss the word of God by saying things like, it's misogynistic. It's patriarchal. It's homophobic. Fill in the blanks. Those are all efforts just to try to dismiss the apostolic authority of the word of God. And it's the same thing that was happening in Corinth. Friends, any church that turns away from the apostolic authority of the word of God will cease to be a church. Actually, more to the point, it already has. By definition, any church that no longer clings to apostolic authority of God's word is no longer a church. It's drifting off into worldliness, and it won't endure. You know, you see this in churches even in our area. They lack a commitment to the authority of God's word, and Maybe sometimes when the preacher's preaching, he seems clever or insightful or nuanced, right? Maybe he's really funny. Maybe he's a good orator. He's winsome. But before long, if you let it play out, you will discover that this departure from the apostolic authority of Scripture was in fact an attempt to gain license for sin. Anytime people try to get out from under the apostolic authority of God's word, what they're actually trying to get out from under is the lordship of Jesus. So that they can do whatever they want and run their life up on the rocks. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. We just finished reading through Ecclesiastes in our daily Bible reading. You guys in the same place this past week? That's what... That's what the wisest man who ever lived said. There's nothing new under the sun. So it was back then, and so it is now. Aspersions cast against the apostle and his word. They said that he was feeble and meek and timid. But Christian churches that endure love the word of God, cherish the word of God, read it, preach it, teach it, conform their lives around it. Paul calls the Corinthians to remain under his authority. And Christian men and women today, we remain under the authority of his letters. Depart from apostolic authority and the church will not endure. 
allow worldliness to creep in, use worldly frameworks to address and deal with problems, the church will not endure. And the third and final one is verses 12 to 18. Churches that lose their missionary calling and zeal will not endure. That's what's going on in verses 12 to 18. Paul is cautioning them. You know, I've spoken before about my love for missionary biographies. Um, Sean Lee and a few others are revamping our library here in the church. Uh, I think we need a section just for missionary biographies. It's one of my favorite genres to read. Have you guys ever read them? So uh, there's one called To the Golden Shore. It's the story, it's the account of um, Adoniram Judson, uh, the first missionary to Burma. It's fantastic. Another one that I'd recommend is the story of John G. Payton, Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, a colony of cannibals, and how he brought the gospel to them. You know, a third one that I'd recommend is Hudson Taylor's The Spiritual Secret. Perhaps you've heard of Hudson Taylor. He was the first missionary. Up to that point, missionary endeavors had always gone to the coastlines of the continents. He was the first one to go inland with the gospel, the China Inland Mission. And he actually was the one who began to disconnect the gospel from its um, cultural moorings and reapply it in that context. So he wore his hair like a Chinese person of that day. He dressed like them in order to bring the gospel to them. It's fascinating. Missionary zeal. Why do I love reading accounts of missionaries? Well, I, I think I just love their conviction. Their conviction that motivated their actions. Their costly actions. Right? It cost them their lives in many cases. I find those accounts encouraging and refreshing. But I also find them so deeply convicting. And we as a church ought to feel the same way. Where is our missionary zeal? Is church simply about nice people being nice, learning how to be nicer, eating egg salad sandwiches and drinking coffee and talking about the weather? Well, I sure hope not. Or are we on a mission? Are we convinced that people on our doorstep are dying and going to hell need of the gospel. Any church that loses that urgency is on its way to demise. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus told the story of seeds that fall on soil among thorns. And those seeds grow up but they never end up bearing fruit because they are choked out by the cares, worries, and pleasures of life. Have we lost our missionary zeal? Has the fruit of our lives been choked off by worries, cares, and pleasures? How can you reignite your missionary zeal? 
I want to make it as simple as possible. There are three things. Pay, pray, or go. If you take stock of your life right now and you say, I've lost my missionary zeal, pay. Begin to give sacrificially and generously to the work of the Lord and you will feel your heart change. Or pray. Become intentional. Keep a list of people that you are praying and lifting up before the throne of the heavenly grace every day, pleading that God would save them as a jewel in his crown. Pray intentionally and feel the missionary zeal begin to burn again. Or go. I've been praying that people, missionaries, would be raised up out of our church who would go to the far reaches of the globe to unreached people groups with the gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But maybe God's not calling you to go in that way. Maybe he's calling you to go across the street or across the hallway. Missionary zeal burns bright when you pay, pray, and go. And churches that endure and thrive are marked by missionary zeal. All right, those are the three things that Paul lays out in chapter 10 that we can pull away that will lead to the demise of a church. Worldliness creeping in, rejection of apostolic authority as revealed in the word of God, and a lack of missionary zeal. Chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to stay in relationship with him and with his teaching. And I felt this one this week in prep. Because over the last month or so, we've been addressing some really difficult issues from Scripture. Have you noticed? I mean, the really hard ones, like sex and money. And I've had countless phone calls, emails, and coffee conversations with many in our church family who are struggling with those issues. What happens is we preach the pure, plain word of God. People hear it. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then you have to decide, what do you do with that? Do you reject it? Do you walk away from St. George's Church? Or do you humbly bow your knee before Jesus Christ as Lord? It's hard. It's a process. Well, it's nothing new. The only reason it's come up at St. George's over the last few weeks is that we're following along in 2 Corinthians, and you can tell by what Paul says that it came up for him too. People heard the difficult teachings of the Lordship of Jesus, and they were ready to dip, cut bait. Done with you, Paul. What does Paul say to them? He says, I wish that you would bear with me. He says, do bear with me. Listen, this is the only way that growth in the Christian life happens. Within the context of Christian community, you will be discipled progressively into a Christian worldview where Jesus is Lord. 
And you will see it not as a drudgery, you'll see it as something lovely and beautiful and glorious. It takes time, it's a process. But it's a process that can be short-circuited if you cut bait and cut off the relationship. Then there's nothing that the church can do for you. Verse 1. Do bear with me. Paul says, give my teachings a fair trial. Give it a fair hearing. Have I not earned that? Over the weeks, months, years? Three factors that lead to the demise of any local church. Worldliness, rejection of apostolic authority, and loss of missionary zeal. And Christians will only endure if they remain in relationship with Paul and his teachings and his letters. Do bear with me. Now this may seem like a tenuous, arduous task. You say, R.D., you've just laid out the things that can cause the demise of a church. Um, it feels like a slippery slope, and in one sense, it is. If your enduring was based on your faithfulness, you and I would fall away every time. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Well, verse 2 in particular. Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Any church that endures, any Christian who endures, any Christian in church that rejects worldliness, clings to apostolic authority, remains white hot with missionary zeal, it's because you realize that you've been promised to Christ. Here's pride. And so you point your life towards your loving husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit, through your word, exposes the sin in our lives, the areas where we run the risk of shipwrecking the faith. Father, we renew our commitment to rejecting worldliness and sticking with the gospel. We renew our commitment to apostolic authority as revealed in God's word, even when it's difficult. God, would you once again break our hearts and give us a passion for the lost. And we pray all of this to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's stand together.